am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Nicole Lambert. She's the president of Myriad. We have a lot to talk about today. We're going to cover a good amount of ground, and I'm just so privileged to have her on today. Thank you so much for coming on, Nicole. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so, you know, you're uh, one, my boss. No. <laughs> yeah. That's just what was, the word chart says. But I know. Really, yeah. Way, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, no, I, I really respect you and uh, have uh, really liked getting to know you and, you know, you're an amazing leader. And I wanted just to get a little backstory about as, as someone that's really running one of the largest genetics companies in the world, I mean, you know, if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about your journey to becoming president of Myriad. Sure, absolutely. And, and likewise, TJ, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and working with you as well. I, I think for myself, so I, I'm a genetic counselor by training. So I actually was one of Myriad's first customers, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And back at the time, it was, you know, BRCA testing was mostly ordered in academic centers. You know, you had to go to City of Hope or MD Anderson mm-hmm. or Memorial Sloan Kettering um, to get tested. And an opportunity came up to join Myriad in the Houston Medical Center in Texas, which was where I was living at the time. And I was just really excited about it. I, you know, had had a great experience with Myriad. I, you know, felt like they were very innovative, very forward thinking. And, you know, they were about getting the test out to women who needed it, right? And not having it bottled up in academic centers. And so I joined Myriad about 20 years ago in a a genetic counselor role, kind of like an MSL role or what we call a regional medical Mm -hmm specialist. So really that that was my job is that there were a number of community breast surgeons and medical oncologists especially that wanted to be able to offer genetic services in their practice because you know patients couldn't always get to MD Anderson. I mean I had yeah. a medical oncologist in El Paso tell me, you know, if a patient needs a BRCA test, I refer them to MD Anderson. Well, that's a 10-hour drive, right? Yeah. Like how, how are, <laughs> not, not. I, and I remember distinctly asking him have you ever had anyone go? <laughs> right? I know. Because, you know, it's it's just sort of unreachable. And so I started out with Myriad in, a, in an educational role, you know, helping some of those leading community breast surgeons and oncologists offer a genetic services risk assessment and testing in their practices. And, you know, I, I then I held a variety of roles. I, I went over to the sales team, which, you know, some people warned me was kind of the dark side, but yeah. for me, it, it never felt like selling because I truly saw the value in getting women tested. I thought it was an empowering experience for women. And I never felt like I was selling anything. Yeah. I, you know, I, I truly believed in what we did. So I uh, was successful in a sales role and eventually, you know, moved up to the corporate office and did a number of different roles in, you know, sales and marketing and new product development and that type of thing. And, you know, finally was positioned to run a business unit or a dermatology business unit. And then I moved over to our urology business unit and our oncology business unit and eventually um, up to president. So it's, you know, probably just one of those good American stories of working. (laughs) Hard work. (laughs) 
<laughs> hard work and diligence. Well, you got you got to know what you're doing though to keep moving up the ladder. So it's good, yep. and I can I can verify that you do. And so in this whole you know time from really the early days of uh, genetic testing at, at only being offered at large academic centers to now, I mean, really from your vantage point uh, with all this experience, how have you really seen this field change? Oh, dramatically. I think, you know, when I started with Myriad, first of all, there were people getting tested anonymously because they were worried about and they were paying cash mm-hmm. I remember for that. it. John, they, John and Jane Doe. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because people were worried about, yeah. you know, this getting into their chart. Um, I remember my first sales training. We actually, you know, we're helping people. If you wanted to get tested anonymously, here's where you could get a loan to get tested, which seems crazy now. It's so yeah well covered by insurance. They're really, if you have any type of family history, it's rare that you have to pay for testing out of pocket. It's it's almost always covered by insurance. But also now when we think about risk assessment models, they're about whether you are going to get breast cancer. When I started, you went to a genetic counselor and you went through those BRCA pro models, you know, yeah. where they were just trying to figure out what was the chance you were going to test positive for a mutation, mm-hmm. right? That still didn't tell you what your true breast cancer risk yeah, was. Yeah, right. And now we've really advanced. I think coverage has has changed dramatically. Patient demand and education has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. It's much more accessible through various physician channels. And so now, you know, we just test people. And once you get your test results is where you know what your risk is. And in the beginning, I'm thinking about the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act in 2002 being a big, you know, reason that people stopped having to do the John and Jane Doe could file with insurance companies. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. 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 And then, of course, in the beginning, you only got test results for B1 and B2. There were plenty of people that probably had PAL-B2 mutations and ATM mutations and things like that, that, you know, we weren't routinely testing for back then. And now you have this much broader panel of genes that is tested for. And even if you come up negative on the panel, we're able to give you a risk assessment from the SNP mm-hmm. score. So risk assessment has advanced dramatically in the 20 years yeah. since I started with Myriad. Yeah. And uh, that's been uh, personally one of the biggest reasons I wanted to join Myriad myself was because I really liked the direction everything was going with bringing in polygenic risk component, bringing in clinical factors, family history variables to really give people the whole picture of someone's uh, precision risk for uh, breast cancer. I wanted to get your story with this uh, because not only have you seen this develop yourself, I mean, you really went through a personal journey, you know, that you'd love if you could tell our audience about. Sure, I, I did. And I think, again, it's, it's all about how things change and evolve over time. Because when I joined Myriad, I had no family history of breast cancer. You know, people always, almost always asked me, did you join Myriad because you have a family history or were you your family affected with breast cancer? And no, for most of my time with Myriad, it, it really wasn't, right? And my mom was diagnosed. She actually had breast cancer twice, but, you know, at, at a later age of onset, right? So it's still, even, even having some quote unquote family mm-hmm. history, it still didn't yeah. stand out as that I would be appropriate for testing or I would meet guidelines or, you know, I should pursue testing. But when my aunt was diagnosed, you know, that all of a sudden she was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer from the get-go. And so, you know, that oh. changed my so-called family history right away. But then I think also when you're in a position like myself where you you don't actively have cancer, you're not trying to make a surgical decision or something like that, you really have the luxury of time. Um, Mm -hmm. which is a a great thing about adult genetics. I think for most of us that were trained as prenatal genetic counselors, 
you're under a time clock and, and yeah. that clock is weeks and you're trying to get testing available and time to make decisions and things like that. In a space like this, you really have much more freedom to operate mm -hmm. about when is the right time for you to get tested. And so if you think about active women, whether they have a, a family at home that they're managing or a career or both, yeah. or, you know, it, it's oftentimes it's, you know, it's not that you don't know what the test is, or you don't know that you meet criteria. It really sometimes is a matter of when do I have time to do this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and even when I, when you get the test result, when do you have time to actually manage it, right? Because I, I always thought going into it, like, well, if I, if I come back with a high risk, I'm going to do surgery right away. And that's just, it's just not a linear process, right? It, you mm -hmm. know, we, we all have things that, you know, we have to get done. So it was a full year between the time wow. that I got my test result and the time that I did surgery. And I'm, I'm a pretty proactive bias for action kind of person, but Life just isn't simple and, and yeah. you know, adding the pandemic and everything else. But um, when you think about your per year risk, I mean, it's pretty low. You yeah. Know, if you're thinking yeah. about a cumulative over the rest of my life risk, I mean, that's a yes. high, you know, that can be a high risk after you do a test like this. Yeah. But yeah, and if I you just break it down by year. That's always that's also what's really cool about risk score, right? Is mm -hmm. previously when we just were testing for hereditary mutations. Every woman that had a B1 mutation would get this report back that says up to 87% lifetime risk. And mm -hmm. the question we always got from physicians was, well, and patients was, well, but when, when, when do we think I'm going to develop breast? Yeah. What's my risk in the next five years? And for the first time with risk score, we're able to give your lifetime risk and your next mm -hmm. five years risk. And yeah. That, for that person. Yeah. yeah individualized. Yeah. Not just a range of, you know, this is what we think BRSA one or two carriers may fall into lifetime. Yeah. But an actual risk estimate based on your yeah, clinical yeah. factors and family history and, and personal background genetic factors. Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting. And it relieves the pressure, right? I mean, when you, if someone puts a number in front of you, 87% lifetime risk, you feel like, oh, I have to do something about this tomorrow, right? But when yeah. you get both, when you get a lifetime risk is this, but risk in the next five years is this. And, and you know, when you're younger, it's, that's a smaller number. And so that mm -hmm. I think also alleviates a lot of pressure to say, I don't have to do this next week. I probably have to do this in the next few years, but I don't have to do this next week. Yeah. So, so you were, you were able to get your test and then if you don't mind, I mean, were you a mutation carrier or how did you, you know, then go about the next steps? Sure. So I was not a mutation carrier and I didn't really expect to be because there wasn't an identified mutation in my family. And so without the invention of risk score, I don't even know that I would have been tested at all. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to know my risk score, knowing that, you know, even if I did test negative for a hereditary mutation, um, I could still get an estimate of my risk. It, I wasn't just going to get back something that said negative and, and had yeah. no further information. And so having that sort of genomic and epidemiological risk factors all put together under risk score and, and being able to get a number, regardless of whether uh, the mutation status was positive or negative, was super helpful because, of course, I, I didn't have a mutation. So instead of just being told population risk, you know, yeah. I, I actually was high risk. I had a, a much more elevated risk than general population. Yeah. And, and that, even that, I mean, you could have done like a different model, you know, like the epidemiology models that are out there, but yeah, they're just not as precise as, you know, them bringing in your other background genetic factors on Correct. top of that. So Correct. 
Correct. And, you know, when it's an, just an epidemiological model, you feel like, okay, based on whatever it is, 10,000 other women, right. women like me had X number of risk. Well, risk is relative. Yeah. So now you had your negative test, you're, you're moving forward, looking at your risk score. I mean, what did you think when you first saw that score on the report? Wow, that's high. Because, yeah. you, you know, the lifetime risk for women in America for breast cancer is what, one in 12, something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. mine was much higher than that, right? And so it put things into perspective. And I think also, I felt very fortunate that I had that number before I got cancer and I had the opportunity to do something about it, you know, because once you get cancer, your options are, are different, right? And you, you know, you don't have the luxury. Like for me, I scheduled my surgery for a year out because that was the most convenient time for me to do the surgery. If I had been mm -hmm. diagnosed, you don't have that luxury. You know, someone sits down and tells you you have cancer and you gotta take everything also yeah. off your calendar. You don't have the yeah. luxury of planning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And how's your journey been? I mean, with, you know, once you made the decision and uh, going through surgery and interesting, and it's, it's so interesting when you go through it yourself, there's all sorts of things you think you're going to do, or you should do, or, you know, you're certain about, but when you actually are faced with that information, sometimes you, you don't exactly do what you thought you would do. Like, mm -hmm. like I, I never thought I would wait a year between when I got my results and when I did my surgery, but it's been very empowering. It's, it's been a great thing to do as I, as I got closer and closer to doing the surgery, you know, I, you often second guess it, or you, you know, have doubts about, did I make the right decision? And for me, that was, my son is seven. I, I was very worried about, you know, what if something happened to me in surgery and he lost his mom at age seven, you know, maybe am I being too paranoid about this, you know, and so I started mm -hmm. to kind of second guess it. And, you know, what happened with me is the post-surgical path report did show some early cancer too. In fact, one in each breast, some early cancers. And so um, that was just really validating for me that, okay, yes, I did the right thing. And in fact, if I, you know, had waited another year, I might not have the options that I had. I might be looking at radiation or chemo or that type of thing. And, and if I had never done the test at all, who knows when we would have found this, if I, you know, would have been diagnosed when I was metastatic, like my aunt. I mean, we, yeah. we know what that would have been. Yeah. So it sounds like you had your family history. I mean, you had a lot of things that were really giving you kind of a direction. And then, yeah, just having that testing really affirm that there was a high risk and uh, allowed you to really empower yourself to make these kind of hard decisions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we've been in this midst of a pandemic for around the last eight months or so. And as part of that, cancer screening has really plummeted, particularly in the beginning of uh, this pandemic, you know, dropping really to a historic low um, for people going in for mammograms in particular, colonoscopies, et cetera. I was just wondering, you know, what messages do you have for people that might be forgoing uh, screening right now uh, or other partnerships that, uh, you know, Myriad may be working on right now to, you know, encourage people to, to get out there and really get the screening they need to keep themselves safe? 
Well, definitely the trend in mammography is very concerning to me. You know, it's at one point we were down 80 or 90% on mammograms. And I think that that is especially dangerous because we will see a, a diagnostic drift in that, you know, we're used to breast cancer being diagnosed very early stage, very curable, et cetera. And with the delay in mammograms, I think we're going to start to see, you know, more diagnoses of late stage cancers. So we really have, you know, made a push to encourage women to go back and get their mammograms. We had uh, partnered with Bright Pink to on a mask up for mammograms campaign, mm -hmm. knowing that early detection is key to survival and that we don't want women to forego what really is a truly pivotal screening for their health care. And, you know, when I think about the mammograms that I've had, it is honestly under 15 minutes that you're in the room with a tech. Usually you're in a room yeah. with one mammography tech, they come in and they place you in the machine and then they leave to take the mm -hmm. picture. They so, go back out and be on the wall. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then they come back. So, you know, really cumulatively, you're, you're not within six feet of them for 15 minutes. And if you're both wearing masks. I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a physician, but it, it, you know, it does seem to meet the CDC guidelines for, yeah. you know, a, a low risk type of activity and you know the risk of being diagnosed with a later stage breast cancer you know that's probably going to impact your survival much more than you know the risk of a possible covid transmission I, tj you're the md what is that a yeah i mean you know there are a few different things right now predicting you know many many thousands of deaths long term coming from uh, you know people foregoing cancer screening even just for these 6 months 8 months i mean it's it's very impressive when you see how much the screening does to reduce not only getting cancer, because, uh, you know, things like colonoscopies can actually prevent cancer. It's both screening and preventative, mm -hmm. because if you see a polyp, you can actually pluck it out. But then just as you brought up, I mean, the inability to identify early stage cancers, and instead of uh, stage one or two cancer, now you're dealing with a three or four, potentially, that's a whole different ballgame. Well, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate the time and this was great discussion and it's been really, I know you said empowering, but it's really empowering to me to see how, you know, even someone that's at your level, a president of a company, you know, really can take a step back, become a patient, weigh everything, go through a journey and still be there for themselves, their family, you know, the provider population, the patient population that they serve in this role. So you're, you're really an inspiration to me. And I, I hope many of the listeners really get uh, fired up about, you know, the ability to prevent cancer with our new amazing genomic tools out there. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I just really encourage everyone to take care of yourself. We all have so much on our plates right now with COVID and homeschool kids and yeah. <laughs> trying to keep everything together and quarantining and contact tracing and everything else. But this is important. Take care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you, TJ.